The second lesson is written in the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy, beginning at the 11th verse. But as for you, man of God, shun all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. It is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal domination. Amen. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that is really life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid the profane chatter and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have missed the mark as regards the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rudy. And as he so articulately read for us today, we have a feast before us in First Timothy. It's not like the cheap smorgasbords I remember going to that my family would take us to a couple times as a child. Though you get to go there and there would be plenty of food for everyone and something somebody liked, although the quality of which was not that great, but it was all there and you can make many trips, right? However, the feast that we get different from a smorgasbord like that in the scriptures is, although plentiful, not some cheap smorgasbord, actually a long, deeply delicious, of great delicacies from a banquet hall. This banquet table that the Lord sets before us is a feast bigger than any smorgasbord and it's got the good stuff. The most scrumptious food. Not one bit of it is on the cheap. It all comes to us in God's word. But like that smorgasbord, 1 Timothy and really all of the scripture is going to take more than just four trips up to the bar. As we've tried to cover six chapters in four weeks, uh, my prayer is that you'll come back day after day to this banquet table. We'll get a foretaste of it at this 
Holy Communion table today. But this word provides a feast for us of great flavor. And we're invited to come back to it regularly. And so I pray that that's the taste that all of us have gotten in 1 Timothy as we see that we couldn't possibly cover everything in these chapters. I must have had 10 different sermons prepared for you this week as I looked at the details and the richness of this text. But we recall as we come to this text today, it's important that we read it carefully and have it read us. Just as you consider slang from the past, if you were to keep that slang and read it literally, you'd be quite confused. Let me give you an example. If I read or said to you today, 23 skidoo, some of you would know that that phrase from the 1920s was inviting you to leave. (laughs) Go away. Or if you're from the 60s, you might say instead, beat feet, right? Or if you grew up in recent days and I said, spill the tea, wouldn't be asking you to make a mess with your beverage. I'd be asking you to share the gospel. And if you got on and on a little bit too long, I might say, especially if I grew up in the 1950s, bash ears, which is maybe not so much of a nicer way to tell the person that they're talking a little too much, which I hope you're not thinking about this sermon today. But if I grew up in the 70s, I might say, close the shades, man, to get you to stop talking. Of course, if I liked what you were saying and I was from the 80s or 90s, I'd say that's the bomb. If I said that in the 40s, I might get underneath my desk at school, right? If I made a mistake in the early 2000s, you might hear me say, my bad. Or if I really didn't like what you did in the 1950s, you might say, ain't that a bite? Of course, if you grew up in the era that I actually did grow up in the 1980s and I really didn't like what you said, I might say gag me with a fork or an entire place setting. Of course, if we were to read texts like that or phrases like that a thousand years from now and someone somehow got a hold of this sermon, they might think those weird, strange Christians encouraging people to gag themselves What could they possibly have done that for? Of course, reading scripture like that in like manner is why some will accuse us when they hear strange sounding texts to us today that seem to support slavery or is against women. To do that is to think that when I say spill the tea, it means I want you to make a mess at the table. Or calling something the bomb means that there's danger, an explosion about to happen. Of course, today, if we all call something cool since the 1940s, we all know that that's something great or good, not something about the temperature. You see where I'm going? 
We've been reminded throughout this series to listen carefully to God's word. And so when we come now to chapter 6, in particular here at the beginning of chapter 6 that I haven't yet read for you, in verses that begin that text, you hear this strange admonition about slaves. In fact, you can hear some pretty strange verses in both the Old and New Testament about slavery. And no, the Bible does not support slavery as we understand it, as we experienced it so horribly as a nation some 200 years ago. The Bible, in fact, explicitly condemns that kind of kidnapping and taking someone's life. But yet it seems to talk about slavery throughout the whole Bible. What is that about? Well, in the Old Testament, you even hear it say in Exodus that fathers seem to be allowed to sell their daughters into slavery. Only until you begin to understand the context of that culture do you, to get that, you'd have to understand it was akin to a parent in the Great Depression sending their child off to live with another family who had the means to provide for them, to feed them, and to shelter them. And so when a father would, in that culture, quote-unquote, sell their daughter off to slavery, it's because they couldn't afford to feed them, and they were trying to find provision and means for that child. Of course, as you fast-forward into the Greco-Roman world that we're in and hearing from in First Timothy, it's also talking about an economic situation where folks would agree to give service to someone for a certain number of years or sometimes even their whole lives to get the guarantee of that same provision. So it's a different type of servitude than we understand slavery to be. But nevertheless, it would sure be nice, as I like Dan Kimball said, if the scripture would have said, it would make it all easier for us today, if it would have said, just to be clear, that. God is against slavery, right? We don't have that clarifying word quite so simply, although if you read the text, it seems we just might. As you go, as I have, into the book of Galatians, you hear Paul, the same Paul who admonishes slaves here in 1 Timothy, tell us that at the footsteps of Christ, the foot of the cross, before God, There's equality, neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, no difference in equality among the races, slave nor free, all are one in Christ Jesus. In fact, we begin to understand quickly when we look at history that scholars tell us that the way in which Early Christendom, the first century church in particular, in those first three centuries, welcomed those whose social status was below others at the time. Both women or slaves were being welcomed into the church. And though because of that, philosophers of the day were mocking Christianity. Oh, that's the 
religion for slaves and for women. It's because, as we've heard unpacked throughout this series, both women and men and slave or free, all were given the dignity of the gospel and the calling of the gospel. All of us come with the opportunity to live as the household of faith and represent Christ to the world. The Pierre Marquette lecturer in theology in 2016 was the, at Marquette University was the eminent scholar, now late, Larry W. Hurtado, who said this at that lecture. He said, in short, birth, death, marriage, the domestic space, civil and wider political life, trades, work, the military, socializing, entertainment, arts, music, were all, all in this Greco-Roman world, were all imbued with religious significance in association with various kinds of divine beings. That is the world that Timothy lived in. That's the world that this text first came to us in. And so it's no wonder that each of those categories that I just read to you from Dr. Hurtado are categories that in 1 Timothy we hear be explained and invited for the living out and the life of the gospel. In other words, unlike that dualistic nature of the world, either uh, physical or spiritual. No, that's not how God saw the world. That, the, that our gospel life as the household of faith is to be lived out differently than the world does in each of those categories. Of course, as we overhear Jesus' conversation with Pontius Pilate, a conversation reflected and reminded of in the history of this text, Jesus' concern isn't first for transforming this culture. It's for transforming our hearts. And when we get that priority wrong, then we even are want to, as some theologies have, miss the point of the gospel even there. And so you and I are to come to the gospel in every aspect of life. So how we read or are read by the scriptures changes our perspective about women, about family, about government and society, about the organization of the church. And as we hear in chapter 5 about caring for the poor and the elders and widows among us. And then as we move into chapter 6 today, we get into everybody's favorite topic for a sermon, money. And we learn that all of these places or vocations where the gospel is to take root is to not steer us away from false, from the true gospel, but these false teachings instead to remain fastened and anchored in the truth. As a matter of fact, if you, if you start going through those categories that we've covered here in 1 Timothy, and you think, well, check, I've got that one, I've got that one, I don't need to worry about 
money. I don't need to worry about family. I've got these all covered. Then probably those are the areas that you need to hear the gospel again. Because you become, as verse 4 says in chapter 6, puffed up and conceited, and therefore moving towards a false doctrine and heresy. We need the word to read us. I thought it was fascinating that the Greek word that gets translated into puff up and conceited sounds a lot like our English word typhoon. And typhoons in the ancient world, especially back then, were thought to not only mess with land and sea, but to mess when someone was caught up in it with the mind and call it crazy. In this case, misunderstood and therefore leading to being puffed up and conceited. So let's, as the text is saying, don't lose our minds and get puffed up and conceited, but come to the scriptures humbly. For this banquet feast set before us that will require many trips to partake in that we possibly can't possibly all cover today. Remind us to live as a household of faith in all of these areas. Real quickly, let me review some of which we haven't covered yet. In chapter 5, which I'll only talk about briefly, it largely deals with the widow's role. Or basically the widow's role is, as Paul Carter calls it, the church's payroll. Widows who could not be cared for by their family members, these poor folk who didn't have means, first he encouraged families to take care of them, but if they couldn't, then they would be put on the payroll. The widow would make a commitment to Christ and serve the church uh, in its mission. It's... There, that the church at one time falsely understood that to include the nunnery. Then in chapter 6, here we come to that strange admonition about slaves. But then also, as we turn the corner from widows and caring for the poor and getting the heart of the church to show our care and concern for our elders... Now we hear about slaves and money. And it seems confusing to our ears. In fact, that verse, the love of money is often widely misunderstood. We often categorize it, even still today, into those dualistic categories. Oh, money is only over here in the physical world. And so uh, I can do with it what I want, almost the hippie idea or I put it out and the spiritual is separated and and I also could become like the monk like we talked about last week in those two dichotomies but really the truth is what we're being warned of here is that this is another area where we are in danger of falling into false doctrines or as one pastor who I heard talk about it says money we're being warned, is a trap. Because in, you fall into that trap, you, you don't know who you are. 
What does he mean by that? Well, it's because you think because I do well with this one area, then I must be doing well with this over here, which isn't the case. Or we don't know how much we even have when we fall into that trap because we always think that the person over there who's doing better than us is then I, I must, I must, in order to meet my self-worth and be successful, I have to get over there. Whether you have little and you're loving and wanting more or have much, regardless. And as you hear this talk about money and you find yourself thinking, that's not me, then once again I invite you because all of us fall into this trap in one way or the other, to let the word read you again. And not fall in the trap of trying to save yourself or excuse yourself because of what you don't have or what you do. Because both are excuses. The love of money becomes a trap. It becomes our new salvation and safety net instead of Christ. And it hinders us from being fully generous. After all, Christ isn't talking about the amount. We know that the widow's might was celebrated. We know that the early church, we know the early church was funded by wealthy early believers. And both were gifts of God's to the church. In fact, even in verse 17, we Hear the caution to not make this dualistic when he tells us that the gifts of money were given to be enjoyed. But let's not fall into the trap of false teaching there either. And so in the chapter ends and really picks up the same theme in 2 Timothy with these admonitions to guard the good deposit. Now, This good deposit now is no longer in reference to finances. It's now in reference to the gift of faith. A gift of faith that, as we heard from the very beginning of this letter, is to lead us to a life of good conscience and righteousness in Christ. And Luther will remind us that it's impossible to live that good deposit life out And for it to endure, if the word is taken away, he'll give the example of if the word is taken away from the sacrament, then it's just bread and wine. And so we need to come to God's word. And as one scholar pointed out, as you look in verse 11 and 12, there's a great alliteration for us there to be able to remember this truth. To flee, to follow, to fight, and to fasten on to. To flee, to follow, to fight, and fasten on to. First, we flee from the false teachings of this world. And being shaped by just the desires of our heart instead, we're to flee that. And that word flee would most certainly have gone into the hearers' minds of the Old Testament moment when Joseph fleed Potiphar's wife to escape the sin of adultery. And so we flee the false teachings of this world. 
And in contrary to that, we follow the true gospel. And just as Luther will also point out from this text that I'm called as a pastor, as bishops and elders are, to take special care of the word so that it remains pure, so it's preached purely. We're also all as baptized believers to take special care to receive that word purely and follow the true gospel. And then we're to fight for it, fasten our life to it. For as a net capturing fish, if it's got a tear, Luther uses this analogy, if it has just one hole, all the fish, all the catch will escape. And so we need to mend those nets and stay true to the sound doctrine and fight the good fight of faith. And it will not be easy. For as this text reminds us, there is a strong condemnation here in chapter 6 of the prosperity gospel. The idea that if I fasten my life like this, then I deserve something. That if I give, then God's going to give me and nothing bad's going to happen to me. And that evil doctrine is preached even still today in churches leading people astray and sinking their faith. No, we're called to fight and fast in our lives even in the midst of suffering because God is with us. And so we hear what that with us looks like in the world and this righteousness and godliness and steadfastness and gentleness, as Luther calls it, the alphabet or catalog of Christian virtues, all as a result of receiving this good deposit that God has given us. And so we flee, we follow, we fight, and we fasten our lives to it. Friends, don't keep one area of your life away from the gospel. Don't hold it back. Don't let any corner of your life be separate from God's word. Don't keep any of these areas away from the true word of God. Be read by it. Don't fall into the trap of a monk or a hippie as we talked about. Don't dismiss it but partake fully in this great feast and come back to it regularly. For as chapter 2 said, we remember the one who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And that proper time God came into this world is also still now. Time for him to come into your heart and receive this good deposit and let it impact every aspect of your daily life. Now is the time to flee, follow, fight, and fasten to the true word of God. And today, yes, today, taste and see that the Lord is good. May his grace be with you all. Amen.